Amen. Oh. All glory be to Jesus. None for ourselves. We don't deserve any glory. We don't deserve any affirmation. We don't deserve anything but judgment, justice. So we just say because of the grace of God, all glory belongs to Christ. Amen. Well, if you have your copy of God's word, and I trust that you do, take it and turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. If we rewind the tape a little bit to last year, at this time, we were having online church, and uh, that was because several of our leaders had COVID, and we decided just to stay home, and we did a little online, it's like 40 minutes, a couple songs, a little meditation, that was it. Before that, we were outside in the freezing cold. Do you guys remember that? Outside in the freezing cold and the wind. You can look back on some of those YouTube videos that we have, and you can just see the, the uh, little banners behind us, or the, the backdrops behind us, just waving in the wind, looking like they're about to take off. We didn't get to gather and sing last year, uh, this time. We didn't get to gather to meditate on Christmas, and that's why... Looking out at each and every one of you this morning, being here together, hearing our voices lifted to Christ our King. It's just amazing. I missed it last year. If we're honest, we've missed a lot of things these last two years. These last two years have been crazy. They've been strange. They've been filled with scary things, with sorrowful things, with frustrating things. They've been filled with loss. They've been filled with heartache and heartbreak. There's one word that you could definitely not characterize and classify these last two years as. It would be ideal. These last two years have been anything but ideal. And if there's one word that we can absolutely not use to describe the birth of our Savior, it's ideal circumstances. That's precisely where hope is born. That's precisely where hope shows up in the darkest moments of your life. That's when hope enters in. In the craziest of circumstances, in the worst of times, in the most unideal of moments, hope is born. And that's what I want us to meditate on this morning. I want to meditate on how Jesus brings hope, brings redemption, redeems and reconciles us to himself, and not only us and our souls to him, but also all of the moments that we have to go through in this life. He redeems our shame. He redeems our sorrow. He redeems our sin. Jesus was born for this very reason, to offer hope in the midst of hopelessness. And so I want us to be aware of that hope this morning, freshly aware with great affections for Jesus Christ. So, Luke chapter 2, in a very familiar passage to many of you, you're going to read this, but we're going to read it as if we've never heard this story before. And I know that that's hard to do. But I want you to read these words and read this text as if you were being taught them and, and read them for the very first time. Somebody gave you the, the scroll of Luke and you're opening up for the very first time and you're reading these words. Now, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all of the inhabited earth. 
This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. Father, we have read these words. We've heard them read many times. We've studied them. We've meditated on them. And we want to feel fresh affections for Christ, an awareness of his presence and his love for us this morning and read these words as if we're reading them for the very first time. God, we look back on these last few years and they are anything but ideal, just like the circumstances surrounding your birth. And yet in those moments, that is when hope was born. In the darkest of moments, a light shone forth. So Father, I pray that you would be pleased to apply your word to our lives in such a way where we would see Christ and we would be changed by him, that we would truly give him all the glory and all the praise for who he is and for what he's done, not only that day so many years ago, but today and forevermore. That Christ would be our treasure, our hope, our adoration forever. Holy Spirit, as we pray every Sunday, open our eyes right now. We need your help. We need divine assistance and divine illumination. So open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law so that we would see Christ. Show us Christ. We pray it in the name of our Savior. Amen. God redeems our most shameful moments, our most sorrowful moments, and our most sinful 
moments, all because of his great love for us. That is this Christmas meditation in a nutshell. God redeems us. Christmas is redemption of our most shameful moments, our most sorrowful moments, and our most sinful moments, all because of his wonderful love for us. So let's take those three points uh, in turn, starting with God redeeming our shame. Christmas is about God redeeming the most shameful moments in our lives. And I think we can see that as God redeems some shameful experiences in this birth narrative of Jesus, our Savior. Let's just look at a couple areas in this narrative where God goes in and redeems a shameful encounter, a shameful experience, a shameful people group. Number one, we can start with Bethlehem. We can start with Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5, verse 2 says, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you will go forth for me to be the ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Prophesied by Micah in the Old Testament that Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. This is exactly what Herod was told by the scribes and the chief priests in Matthew chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. When Herod said, is there a king of the Jews who's supposed to be born in Bethlehem? They said, yes, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. They read him Micah 5, 2. Bethlehem. Bethlehem, you know Bethlehem. It means house of bread. And then Micah attaches to it Bethlehem Ephrathah. Bethlehem Ephrathah. Ephrathah means uh, a place that's fruitful. And it's kind of a, a more specified way of describing Bethlehem because there were two Bethlehems in Israel. There's a Bethlehem up in the north in Galilee. And there's a Bethlehem down in the south in Judea. And so, as one of my professors used to say, when the Lord provided the address for the town where the Messiah was going to be born, he also provided the zip code. Bethlehem, not in Galilee, in Ephrathah, down in the south. Bethlehem. Micah tells us that it is too little to even be named among the clans of Judah. Literally, a better translation would be too little to be named among the thousands of Judah. Judah was a massive tribe, and Bethlehem is this tiny little people group, this tiny little insignificant nothing town. It was so small, it wasn't even listed among the dozens of towns of Judah in Joshua 15. It was just left out because it's trivial, it's pointless, it's insignificant. Even the people in Jesus' day knew this. John chapter 7, verse 42, they knew that Messiah was going to be born there, but they said that can't be because Bethlehem is so insignificant and has such a sordid past. There's no way that Bethlehem is going to be the place that the king's going to be born. It has to be Jerusalem. It was too small, it was too insignificant, and Bethlehem had a shameful past attached to it. We could do a study of the, the whole Bible just on the shame of Bethlehem itself. I'll just give you two verses. Uh, we studied them when we went through the book of Judges together. Judges chapter 17, verse 1. Remember, there was Micah and the Levite who are involved. Here's a priest who's involved in idol worship, and he's from Bethlehem. In Bethlehem, he set up idols to worship false gods. Judges chapter 19, there's another Levite who owns a concubine. And you remember the story from our time in the book of Judges, how she is mistreated, how she is ultimately killed, and he cuts her body up and sends it to all of the tribes of Israel. I mean, this is from Bethlehem. So when you think of Bethlehem, you think of one of the worst places. This is, this is Gotham City of the Bible. 
This is a dark area that nobody wants to go to unless you're Batman. And Jesus says, I want to go there. I want to be born there. I don't want to be born in Jerusalem where the kings were. I don't want to be born in Galilee where it's beautiful. I want to be born in the desert, out in the fields. I want to be born in Bethlehem to redeem that sordid, shameful past, that insignificant, trivial past. We could look at Bethlehem and see how Jesus' birth in the city of David redeems all of that terrible history. Forever now, when you hear Bethlehem, you don't think of the concubine. You don't think of the uh, false idol worship. Now you think of Jesus being born. Why? Because Christ redeemed Bethlehem. Secondly, we could talk about the redemption of the shame of the shepherds. We could look at the shepherds. The shepherds are seen in verses 8 and down through verse 20. Again, God says, I'm not going to send the angels to the priests. I'm not going to send the angels to the kings. I'm not going to send the angels to the political powers. I'm going to send the angels to share the news to the shepherds. This is similar to what we talked about last week with women. I'm going to point to women as the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection. I'm going to put women in the very beginning of the genealogical record of Jesus to show you not only are they more elevated than you could possibly think, but the shame that you would attach to them, Old Testament people and New Testament people living in uh, Israel, that shame should be redeemed. It should be gone. It should be undone. So too, these shepherds, lowly, humble, unclean, they're watching over animals that are unclean, that are destined to be slaughtered. There's nothing special about the shepherds, and that's why they are so special. The angels are sent to the shepherds in Bethlehem. That would, like, that would be like the angels being sent to a truck stop in Bakersfield, right? <laughs> Just show up. I'm sure the angel's going, are we sure we have the right address, Right? Look at the map quest again. Look at Google Maps. Are we sure? Are we following Apple Maps that are taking us to dead ends constantly? Where are we? The heavenly announcement's not made to kings, not made to dignitaries, not made to royalty. It's made to shepherds. It's made to nobodies. That's who God wants to hear the news first. Philip Ryken says this way, shepherds were outcasts. We tend to romanticize the shepherds, especially since there are so many good shepherds in the Bible, but they did not enjoy a very good reputation in their day. They lived out in the fields, and because of that, they were unable to keep the ceremonial laws and thus were treated as unclean. They were also regarded as liars and thieves, which is why their testimony, just like women, was not admissible in a court of law. Shepherds were despised. With the exception of lepers, shepherds were the lowest class of men in Israel. And God says, I want the nobodies to hear the news of Jesus being born before anybody else. He redeems the sordid past of Bethlehem. He redeems the lowly state of the shepherds. He also redeems a shameful story that was being described regarding Mary and Joseph. You can just write in your notes, if you're taking notes, he redeems the shame of Bethlehem, redeems the shame of the shepherds, redeems the shame of there being no room in the inn. Number three, redeems the shame of there being no room in the inn. This is in verse seven. Mary gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in claws, laid him in a manger, a feeding trough, out in a stable, out in a barn, out in a cave somewhere, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, in order to understand what 
Luke is actually saying. We have to do a little bit of a word study here because in our minds, we think of inn as a hotel. We think of a hotel, no vacancy sign, right? Songs are made about that. Do you have any room in your heart for Jesus? I totally understand it. I totally get it, but that's not what Luke is saying. And it's very clear that that's not what Luke is saying. And even in our minds, it would absolutely make sense that this isn't what Luke is saying. Because if there is a hotel filled up to the brim with people and it says no vacancy, surely there would be a place that somebody would say, oh my word, this, this woman's giving birth. She can have my room and I'll stay somewhere else. I've got family in the area. That word in is much better translated as guest room. It's the word kataluma in the Greek which is translated in Luke's gospel in Luke 22, verse 11, as the guest room where Jesus partakes of the Passover in the upper room. That was uh, Mark's parents' house. It was a room that Jesus knew. It was a house that Jesus was familiar with, and he's using a spare room in their house. The word for hotel in the Greek is not kataluma. It's pandosion, and it's in Luke chapter 10, verse 34. You know that passage, right? The good Samaritan... Remember the good Samaritan sees the person who's beat up, grabs him, puts him on his donkey, takes him to a hotel. And the hotel manager says, hey, this is going to cost a lot. And the man says, whatever you need, I'll come back, write whatever receipt, I'll pay it. That's the word for a hotel. That's the word for inn. That's not the word that's used here. So if Luke wanted this to be hotel, it would have been Pandosion. No, it's not a hotel. It's not a stranger's home. It's a guest room in a home that Joseph would have known, maybe even grown up in. Why is it a guest room? Well, you remember what Joseph is called by the governing authorities to do. He lives up in Nazareth, but he has to go back down to his hometown, to his place of birth, to his uh, home city. And so he's going back to grandma and grandpa's house. He's going back to where he was born, where he grew up. And he knocks on the door at Grandma and Grandpa's house. Nobody opens. He knocks again. And maybe there's a little rattle at the handle and slowly the door opens up and it's Grandma because Grandma cannot stand to leave Mary and Joseph out in the cold. Grandma says, I'm so sorry. Papa's not going to allow you to come in here. And why? Why is Papa not going to allow you to come in here? Because you have a child out of wedlock. And Mary, I know we've heard this story. We all know that some angel come talk to you, tells you that you're going to be born, you're going to give birth to the Messiah through the power of the Holy Spirit. I get it. Fake story. Nobody believes it. In fact, Joseph himself didn't believe it until an angel showed up and said, no, no, no this is of the Lord. So Mary, stop lying. Just admit you were impure. Just admit you were unclean. Just admit you were immoral. No, this really is a baby born from the Lord. Grandma says, you can't be here. We can't condone this. We can't look favorably upon this. If you enter this house, Papa's going to throw a fit, and it's Christmas, man. You can't do that to Papa on Christmas. It is here. There would have been a family house and a guest room in that family house for Mary and for Joseph, but there's no room. Why? Because of the scandal of their infidelity and their immorality. No one's buying the story, and therefore, get out. Not even his own family members. 
This followed Jesus all the way in his life in John chapter 8, verse 41. The Pharisees said, you can't be the Messiah because you were born of fornication. You were born of fornication. You cannot be the Messiah. And here, there's a beautiful foreshadowing of the hope that was born in Jesus Christ. Joseph, an innocent man, taking upon this supposed guilt. His amazing humility was only outdone by his son. So maybe you're here this morning. Maybe you feel like Bethlehem. Maybe you feel too insignificant, too trivial, of no consequence. Nothing can happen in you. Nothing can happen through you. Maybe you feel like the shepherds. You're an outcast. You're unloved. You're unwanted. You're despised. Or maybe you feel the shame of your sin, real sin, not Mary and Joseph kind of sin where people threw that on them because they thought it was their sin, but it genuinely wasn't, but real sin. My friends, Christ was born for you to redeem your insignificance, to redeem uh, your feeling small and trivial, to redeem any shameful, sordid past, to redeem your sin, to pick you up, to wipe away your shame, and to say, I love you. Number two, not only does God redeem our shame in Christmas, but God redeems our sorrow in Christmas. God redeems our sorrow in Christmas. Let's go back to Bethlehem. Joseph, verse 4, goes up from Galilee to the city of, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he's of the family lineage of David. Bethlehem, one of the realities of the life that we live, and we'll see this through the lens of Bethlehem, is there are sorrowful moments that are silly, that are annoying, that are just, they're, they're frustrating and they're annoying, and then there are sorrowful moments that are deep, that are serious, that hurt beyond anything we could have ever comprehended. So I, I kind of split them out that way. Just silly sorrow, okay? Just silly, insignificant. This isn't real, deep sorrow, but it's annoying. God redeems it. Just look at verse 1 and verse 2. In those days, a decree goes out from Caesar Augustus that a census would be taken of all the inhabited earth. By the way, just a reminder that we do not believe in fairy tales. This is a historical time marker for you and for me to bank our eternal destiny on historical fact. We're given time markers. We know Caesar Augustus, he died at the age of 75 by natural causes on August 19th, 14 AD. His son Tiberius would then become Caesar. He was the Caesar who was alive during the life of Christ. So we know Caesar Augustus. We know when this happened. We also know who Quirinius is. He's the governor. This is the first of many census taken. And we know when he would take those census. He took several of them. We know when he took them. We know where he took them. We don't believe fairy tales. We believe facts. But notice, God uses the government and frustrating, annoying, sorrowful circumstances to bring about his good purposes of hope and joy. Even when the government is making regulations that seem really inconvenient, like having to travel back to your place of birth for a census to be taken while you're almost about to give birth to your son. And even in those moments, Jesus is working and he's bringing hope in the midst of those annoyances. Even if you have to wear masks or meet outdoors for church. I don't know if that's too soon. I don't know if I'm allowed to use that yet. 
God's using all of it. Brothers and sisters, God's using all of it. That's why I've said over and over and over again, especially as we studied the book of Revelation, we know how the story ends. We should be the most joyful, confident, least complaining people in the universe because God redeems the sorrow that seems silly, just annoying. And we know that, as we say often, these are just first world problems. They're so annoying. And God says, yes, I can use that. I can redeem that. But even more than that, what about serious sorrow? What about sorrow that goes deep into your soul, that cuts like a wound, that will never heal? Back in Bethlehem, you remember Ruth chapter 1. You remember Naomi? Naomi lived with her husband in Bethlehem. They had to leave because there was a famine in Bethlehem. People were dying. So they leave. They go to Moab. And in Moab, Naomi's husband and her two sons die. She comes back home having buried her her dear sweet husband and her two sons. Naomi was from Bethlehem. There was real sorrow that happened in that city so many years ago. David was born in Bethlehem. That's why it's called the city of David. He rescued his parents from Bethlehem because he was afraid that they were going to be held hostage by Saul, who was trying to kill David in 1 Samuel 23. So even for David, his hometown, he wanted to get out of it because he knew his life was on the line, and he was afraid that his parents were going to be killed. What about the sorrow of Rachel? Rachel died in Bethlehem. You remember Genesis chapter 35, Rachel gives birth to Benjamin. She does not call him Benjamin. She knows that she is dying, and so she says, he is Ben-Oni, the son of my sorrow. And then she passes away, and then Jacob takes his son and says, we're going to call him Benjamin, son of my right hand. I don't want sorrow attached to his life forever. Genesis 48 describes Rachel being buried in Bethlehem in Ephrathah. Jeremiah 31, verse 15, there is weeping and wailing in Bethlehem because Rachel's descendants have been exiled. And that passage is quoted in Matthew chapter 2, verse 18, when all the male babies in the vicinity of Bethlehem are killed uh, at a certain young age because Jesus was born and Herod wants to make sure that Jesus is killed. Just think about that. Think about the sorrow that happened on that first Christmas. The sorrow surrounding the birth of Christ that there were babies that died in place of Jesus so that he could be born to die in their place and usher them into an eternity with him. If a town's reputation is shaped by its history or by its sorrow, then little Bethlehem would never have been chosen. And Jesus says, not only do I want to redeem the shame of Bethlehem, I want to redeem the sorrow so that now it's no longer a place where you think of the death of Rachel or you think of all of these absolutely terrifying, horrifying, and sorrowful moments. Now, whenever you think of Bethlehem, I want you to think of the Christ child being born. He's come to redeem our sorrow. Maybe as you look back on this year or last year, maybe it's just filled with tears. Maybe it's just filled with tragedy. Maybe it's a lost job. Maybe it's a lost relationship. Maybe it's lost time. Maybe it's a lost loved one. Maybe you look back at your whole life and you just see tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. Pain is not the islands of our life, but the ocean of our life. 
Disappointment or letdown is the stage on which all of life unfolds. It's not the occasional blip on an otherwise comfortable and smooth life. But because Jesus was born, we know that no pain that we ever go through as believers will ever be wasted, ever. He has redeemed our sorrow. As one author says, in the hardest moments of life, we can either put all of our weight on our theology of what we know to be true about Christ redeeming our sorrow, or we can let our hearts calcify and harden. We will always be changed by pain. The question is, for the better or for the worse? Pain never lets us stay the same. So if you want to be a solid, weighty, radiant old man or old woman someday, then let the pain in your life today force you to believe your own theology, to live according to it, to trust the goodness of God that he redeems those most sorrowful moments of our lives. This does not mean in the sorrow that we're going through that we give each other theological answers, right? That's not what this means. And I think we do this well at our church. The Bible says, weep with those who weep, not give theological answers to those who weep. Weep with those who weep. Giving those theological answers in those moments just tends to exacerbate the pain. People in pain, in suffering, don't need us facing them, speaking to them. They need us beside them, next to them, weeping with them. And that's exactly what Jesus did when he was born. He took on our humanity and said, I'm going to weep with you. I'm going to bear sorrow with you. And therefore, in the midst of sorrow, if you can remember and believe that no amount of pain is ever wasted, then you can find joy even with tears streaming down your face. Joy is not the absence of, of tears. Joy is the presence of Christ in the midst of that sorrow. So what about you? What sorrow have you gone through this last year that Jesus would say today, I was born to redeem it. I was born to redeem it. Finally, number three, not only does God redeem our shame and not only does God redeem our sorrow, but finally, God redeems our sinfulness. God redeems our sinfulness. Yes, Bethlehem had a terrible history marked with pain and sorrow and shame and sin. But on a night long ago, the house of bread, Bethlehem, produced the bread of life to redeem the world. And the world has never been the same. God redeems our sinfulness. This is in verses 9 and 10. The angel of the Lord suddenly shows up, stands in the presence of the shepherds. The glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terribly frightened, filled with fear. So that the angels have to repeat that phrase that I'm sure angel school always teaches you the very first day of angel school. You need to learn the words, fear not. Because that's always what you have to say every time you show up to a human. Do not be afraid. There's no way to avoid this fear, by the way, because there's no way for sinners to stand in the presence of holiness without fear. Fallen creatures are always terrified in the presence of God, and God's glory is literally shining around these shepherds, so they're terrified. One commentator says it this way, humanity has nothing to fear, though, when God moves in grace. And that's why the angels say, don't fear. What you're most afraid of I'm giving you news that will undo it. 
I'm coming to give you good news of great joy that will undo what you're terrified of. R.C. Sproul says it this way, what every human being needs to be saved from is, what would you put there, by the way? What every human being needs to be saved from is, how would you fill in the blank? R.C. Sproul says, what every human being needs to be saved from is God. It's God. The last thing in the world that an impenitent sinner wants to meet on the other side of the grave is God. But the glory of the gospel is that the one from whom we need to be saved is the very one who does the saving himself. Jesus is born to redeem us. We are terrified of him because he and his holiness, the, the brightness of his holiness, the, the light of his glory shines into our dark hearts and we know we're sinners. We know we are, we are guilty. We know we've messed up. We know we've done things that are wrong. We know we've offended a holy and awesome God. And therefore, just like you would be scared to be pulled over by a police officer when you know that you're speeding, so too, in the presence of God, knowing that you have sped your whole life, disobeying him, we're terrified. But the very thing that we're terrified of, Jesus says, I'm born to redeem you. God's glory is a beautiful thing. It's a terrifying thing. It's terrifying to sinners, which is why the shepherds are so afraid. But it's beautiful because God says, through the angels, I've come to take away your sin. I've come to be a savior. That's why the angels say in verse 10, don't be afraid because I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. Good news. Christianity is not good counsel, good advice, good list of things to do. The gospel and Christianity is good news. It's already been finished. It's already been accomplished. You just need to agree with that and believe it and follow it. It's an announcement that's been made. It's the gospel, good news. And it's filled with great joy, megas joy. And it's for all the people. It's for all the people. That's why they show up to the shepherds first. They are all the people. They're the lowly people. This is good news. It's not just good news. It's good news of great joy. It's not just good news of great joy. It's good news of this intense joy, the highest of highest, the glory in excelsis deo, in the highest of highest. Why? Because, verse 11, today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior. Notice it's not. There has been born in the city of David your judge. God has been born to you in human flesh as your judge, and you better be ready. I mean, that's really the, the existence of Santa Claus, right? You better be ready for him because he's coming to town. Better not pout, you better not shout, you better not cry, you better not whine, whatever the song is. Don't do any of those bad things. Why? Because Santa's coming. I, I don't know why we get this idea of like jolly old Saint Nick. He just seems angry all the time. You better watch out, you're going to get cold. Jesus is born. Why is he born? He's not born to judge. He's born to save. That's why this is incredible news. This is the greatest need that we ever had and God says, I will meet it. A Savior is born. Even here in verse 10, at the announcement of his birth, his death is in view because he's born to die. The only way that he can save you and me is to bear our penalty, to bear our sin on the cross, to be killed on the cross so that we don't have to die that death. And so even here, his death is in view. 
His life begins in a trough made of wood. It ends on a cross made of wood. His life begins wrapped in swaddling cloths and it ends in linen wrappings in a tomb. That's why, as one author says, Christmas is disturbing. He says, quote, When I look in the manger, I come away shaken as I realize yet again that Jesus was born to pay the unbearable penalty for my sin. What do you see when you look in the manger? Do you walk away shaken from seeing your Savior born to die the death that you deserve? And yet at the same time, Christmas is also the most comforting reality in the world. You have a Savior who is born to take your place to save your soul. That's why the, the angels say, He is born unto you. Unto you is born this day. I love that. Unto you. This is the tag on the present of Jesus being given to us. To you from God. This is one of the weirdest birth announcements, and there's a lot of strange ones that are going around today that catch fire to all sorts of different things, that they gender reveals and all that stuff. How about this one? Normally, you would have a birth announcement saying, born on this day to Joseph and Mary, something about his weight and his height, and a cute little baby picture. Not here. He's not born to Joseph and Mary. Nothing about his height or his weight. He's born to you. He's given to you. J.I. Packer says, The Christmas message is that there is hope for a ruined humanity, hope of pardon, hope of peace with God, and hope of glory. Because of the Father's will, Jesus Christ became poor and was born in a stable so that 30 years later he might hang on a cross. It is the most wonderful message that the world has ever heard or will ever hear. When Jesus was born, we had hoped that God would speak again and would not leave us in the dark. When Jesus was born, we had hoped that all of the promises God had made would come true. What God did when he sent his son into the world is an absolute guarantee that he will do everything he's ever promised to do. When Jesus was born, we had hope that the Lamb of God would once and for all take away our sins. When Jesus was born, we had hope of our own second birth being possible. And when Jesus was born, everything changed. Jesus was born to redeem our most shameful moments, our most sorrowful moments, and our most sinful moments. But I wonder, if you're sitting here this morning, and you look at your life, and you say, that's great for others, but that doesn't apply to me. You don't know what I've done. You don't know how bad my shame is. You don't know how deep my sorrow is. You don't know how awful my sin is. My entire life could never be loved by Jesus. If that's you this morning, I just want to gently remind you, if you're feeling that way, you're looking at the wrong life. You're looking at the wrong life. You're looking at your life. And your life offers nothing to God as far as anything that would merit redemption. The defining hallmark of your life is not how clean you could be, but you aren't. The defining hallmark of your life is Jesus' love despite your uncleanness. We can underestimate God's love. But I dare you to try to overestimate it. It's pretty much impossible to overestimate the amazing nature of God's love. 
Jonathan Edwards says, God's essence being love, he is, as it were, an ocean full of infinite love without shores or bottom or surface. John Bunyan said, love in Christ is essential to his being. God is love. Christ is God. Therefore, Christ is love. Love naturally. That's who he is. He may as well cease to be as cease to love. Thomas Goodwin said, Christ is love covered over with flesh. He's offered to us as love covered over with flesh. John Owen said, so much as we see of the love of God, so much as we shall delight in him and no more. If you see the love of God, for how much you see it, that's how much you're going to delight in it. So if you underestimate the love that God has for you, you're not going to delight in it. Every other discovery of God without this will make the soul fly from him. But if the heart be once more taken up with this eminency of the Father's love, it cannot choose but be overpowered, conquered, and endeared unto him. If the love of a father will not make a child delight in him, then what will? I say that to my kids every day. They would tell you the one thing that I've told them never to forget. I love you. I'm so proud of you. And I'm so glad you're my son or my daughter. I say that every day. And I know that they don't understand how deep that is. You know, if you're a parent, you know. You know, you just, you wish you could somehow get into their brain and their heart to, to help them to know how much you love them. Sometimes Ethan will go, yeah, I know, Dad. Tyler goes, you say that every day. How many times do we do that with our Heavenly Father? He says, I love you. I give my son for you. And we say, yeah, I know. God would have to un-God himself in order not to love you. He never tires of giving love to you. William Still, who is a Scottish pastor in the mid-1900s, said, God never tires of giving. Even when we are not grateful, he gives. And then he gives. And then he gives again. Sometimes when others have grieved him, we suppose that God will visit them, punish them, or deal harshly with them. Instead, he just lavishes more tokens of his love upon them. So if you're here this morning and you say, I get it, Christ has been born to redeem my life, but I'm beyond redemption. I'm so unlovely, I can't be loved. I'm disqualified from being loved. My friends, you saying that you're unlovely qualifies you to be loved. That's the only thing that you need. If you're here this morning, you're saying, I can't be loved by God because look at how awful I am. Look at how messed up I am. Look at how shameful and sinful I am. That's the only person that's going to be redeemed. That's the only person to whom redemption is glorious. Somebody standing here this morning, sitting here this morning is going to say, I don't really need redemption. Well, then you're not going to receive it. If you think you can get to heaven on your own good works, if you think you can get to heaven by what you've done, by your merit, because maybe you're not that bad, then God's just going to leave his hands off of you and say, try, try. This is precisely what will qualify you to experience this love. If you see yourself as lovely, that would limit how you can experience the love of God. But if you know yourself to be undeserving of it, then you can be astonished and amazed and startled and arrested by his love for you. Jonathan Edwards says it this way. I love this quote. They that find Christ discover that though he be so glorious and excellent a person, yet they find him ready to receive such poor, 
worthless, hateful creatures as they are, which was completely unexpected to them. They're surprised by it because they did not imagine that Jesus was such a kind person, such a person of grace. They had heard that he was a holy savior and he hated sin. They did not imagine that he would be so ready to receive such vile, wicked sinners as them. They thought surely he would never be willing to accept such provoking sinners, such guilty wretches, those who had such abominable hearts. But behold, he's not a whit the more backward to receive them for that. They unexpectedly find him with open arms to embrace them, ready to forget all of their sins forever as though they had never even happened. They find that he, as it were, runs to meet them and makes them most welcome and admits them not only to be servants in his household, but his very friends and family. He lifts them out of the dust and he sets them on his throne. He makes them the children of God. He speaks peace to them. He cheers and refreshes their hearts. He admits them unto strict union with himself and he gives the most joyful entertainment and binds himself to them to be their friend forever. And this is beyond all imagination or conception. In order to get Christmas, you must know that Christ was born for you. You must know, not in an intellectual sense. Jonathan Edwards says, you can know honey in two distinct ways. You can know the exact chemical makeup of honey, or you can taste it. My friends, I want you to taste and see that the Lord is good. So no matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, Christ was born for you. And this morning, I want us to embrace that as good news. I want us to embrace the reality that we have no offering to give to God. And so God gives us Jesus to be our offering. We have no faithfulness of our own to say, look at how awesome I am, God. So God says, I will provide a perfect record of faithfulness in Jesus Christ. What shame, what sorrow, what sin do you have weighing you down this morning? My friends, Christ was born to redeem you. Father, we thank you for your love for us. And as we meditate now on your amazing love as you were born to redeem us, God, I pray that we would be undone, that we would yet again come to the manger and see our Savior born to give us salvation. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. is born.
Christ is 